and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Today you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack, and thank you so much for tuning in for what is now our 13th episode. Pretty exciting, number number 13, that's actually my favorite number. And this week we've got a bit of an exciting episode for you. The idea was actually made by Jack, he suggested it, and he thought that we should do a myth-busting episode. So what we did was we asked you guys on Instagram a bunch of questions on what are some myths that you hear, you know, thrown around in the health and fitness industry or your local gym, and you really just want to know, are they true? (laughs) Like, let's get to the bottom of this. So Jack and I's plan for today is to give you the real answers to all of these crazy ass myths that you hear. So we're going to kick it off with one. So this was asked by my friend Charmaine at the gym, and it says, every health claim about apple cider vinegar. So (laughs) I think this is a good one to start with. And um, first, before we get into the answer about that, Jack's going to read off a few of the proposed health claims that you might hear thrown around on social media regarding apple cider vinegar. So yeah, what we've done is I've just gone into the tags for Instagram and just typed in apple, hashtag apple cider vinegar and just picked a random photo about the health claim. So this one's by Liberty Supplements and they say that apple cider vinegar can be used for aftershave, for widening your teeth, gout. That makes no sense because gout is like the accumulation of... <laughs> uric acid which like forms into crystals so yeah jesus (laughs) but some other ones here are varicose veins we even have warts we have sinus infections fungus age spotlight in us swelling sunburns hair rinse that would stink hair rinse rinse jesus yuck um but yeah jesus okay so this stuff is basically pixie dust it is (laughs) it's magical But yeah, okay, so guys, the main health claims that Jack just read out for apple cider vinegar, as as well, another common one is that apple cider vinegar helps with insulin sensitivity and blood glucose levels control. Now, to my knowledge, the only randomized control studies done in this area have been done on type 2 diabetics. So these are individuals who already have issues with blood glucose levels control, you know, high elevated levels of blood glucose, and their cells aren't responsive to insulin. So what they've done in these trials is they've given these individuals a essentially shot of apple cider vinegar following a meal, and then at different time points, they've tested their blood glucose levels. And what they have found is that in patients who are type 2 diabetic, that there is a modest decrease in postprandial blood glucose levels and serum insulin levels. Now, remember, like I've said, this is in type 2 diabetics. So we cannot apply these research findings to healthy individuals who exercise regularly, who are of a healthy body weight, okay? Also, there are a few proposed mechanisms for how apple cider vinegar actually does lower blood glucose levels, but they haven't actually determined the true cause of it. What they are assuming is that when you consume vinegar, it does slow down gastric emptying. So there's just a slower release of glucose from your intestine into your bloodstream. Also, it might interfere with the breakdown of disaccharides, 
um, into monosaccharides for that glucose to actually be absorbed, or it might even influence hepatic glucose production. So you, your liver might not produce as much glucose by itself, but at the same time, scientists just haven't drawn any strong conclusions for this. And this is every type of vinegar as well. There's nothing special about apple cider. So yeah. it could be balsamic vinegar, it could be red wine vinegar. Yeah, exactly. So like, and one thing I really want to make clear is that can people please think about their dental health and their teeth? Because Jesus, you see on social media, especially girls, you know, they wake up the first thing in the morning. What they do is they take a shot of apple cider vinegar mixed with lemon juice, which are both highly acidic, mixed with honey, which is very sugary, and they coat their teeth in that consistently every single morning and oh my god the enamel on your teeth the erosion of that it's so sensitive to acid and sugar <laughs> and <laughs> has anyone noticed that the girls that are actually promoting apple cider vinegar shots are usually the ones that are linked in with like those teeth whitening companies i don't know <laughs> i don't know if there's a bit of a coincidence going on there or what but yeah Guys, what we know is that the two best things, or I guess you could say three best things for insulin sensitivity are regular exercise, controlling your body weight, and getting a good night's sleep. You don't need to be drinking vinegar. Vinegar does, you know, um, it carries the flavor through food. So if you were marinating meat, you know, putting a little bit of vinegar on your meat to marinate, that might enhance the flavor. But Jesus Christ, you don't need to take shots of it every day. And yeah, we're not really even going to bother about the other things because like say warts, it's it's like linking two random things in the world <laughs> together and saying like warts and paper and like just they're two things. It doesn't mean that one is going to help the other. Or... I don't know. And I don't think that's from consume. It must not be from consuming it endogenously. Yeah. Maybe if someone has warts, they like, because v- vinegar in itself is antibacterial and antifungal. Like my grandma has a huge bottle of white wine vinegar under her sink because you know she claims it helps to clean things which is true it's antibacterial but jesus you do not need to drink it oh my god enjoy it on your salad but just quit the shots (laughs) okay so next one this will be a fun one so this was done by um this was asked by nikki ward and she essentially said celery juice with two very angry faces (laughs) So Jack's going to answer this one. So yeah, I'll just clarify that we asked for all myths. So this is also from people who know that obviously celery juice doesn't work. They're not saying, they're not asking us because they're in doubt. It's just, yeah, it's just another myth they've heard. So yeah, basically did a little bit of research. And so the first thing I'll do is just read out a few of the claims from celery juice. So critical for chronic acid reflux fights autoimmune disease, helps eradicate strep bacteria, brings down, this is, this is the best one, brings down toxic liver heat. <laughs> what is toxic liver heat? Your body is kept at a constant temperature unless you have a fever at like 37 degrees Celsius. I don't know what is toxic liver heat. <laughs> unless you're... But, you know, apparently celery just cures it, so hey. So, yeah, basically celery is literally just... A little bit of fiber, which also gets removed if you juice it, unless you use like a Nutribullet or something, which will blend it. 
and few water soluble vitamins and water yeah so there's like there's vitamin a there's vitamin c vitamin k and just a few trace minerals but like nothing substantial like i don't think celery would even compare to something like an orange or an apple mm. yeah the, like the probably the highlights of celery is that it's very low in calories it's probably decently high in fiber for the amount of calories it has so yeah it's a very like high volume low calorie food but yeah and there's even there's people say that it's a negative energy food which means that your body will take more energy eating and digesting it than um the calories in the food itself which is also wrong so celery has around six calories for a stick um takes about half a calorie to chew and digest it so damn that's sad i thought it would have been more than that half yeah. a calorie damn Okay. <laughs> yeah, apparently one hour of mastication burns 11 calories. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So maybe that's where the myth comes in from like chewing gum will burn calories, but mm. it's like, it's negligible. It's not, yeah, it's not quite as good as cardio, is it? So I guess half a calorie for chewing with six calories per stick, you it's a net calorie intake of 5.5 But they calories. they did also mention that, so... Th- in the time that you are actually digesting the celery, like your body or your other bodily functions are burning around 19 calories. So mm-hmm. if all you're eating is celery, then you are still going to be in a, in a net loss. Yeah. Well, dude, imagine someone who has to eat 2000 calories a day, you know, an average person. I know that's not much for you, but fuck, that's a lot of celery <laughs> and you would be very nutrient deficient in other things. I will say that maybe a benefit that people see from drinking celery juice is that maybe it's replacing something else, you know, because if you are juicing your celery or blending up your celery, maybe that is better than, you know, having a very sugary iced tea or something during the day. So you are, it's promoting a calorie deficit there, but freaking hell you don't you don't need to do this guys you can enjoy celery in a salad or you can enjoy a celery stick and put some hummus on it or something or i think lane norton actually made a good point i think it was lane norton that said one of the benefits might be that you're eating celery or like celery provides you with something to put peanut butter on or something Mm. so that's a benefit it's a good scoop (laughs) yeah also damn celery's like expensive if you're just like juicing a whole bunch of celery stalks and that's a waste of celery because i like celery and if people are just getting the juice out of it and throwing away the rest that's not very nice okay i need that other people need that don't waste vegetables all right so what's another one so we got a few on a few on meal timing especially carbs at night make you fat and yeah just meal time in general doesn't matter question mark um, yeah. So. so should we tackle the first one, meal timing? Yeah. Sure. Okay. So meal timing, I guess if you looked at it very broadly, so essentially the question was, does meal timing matter? So if you are looking at weight loss as a whole and you're just concerned with weight loss, right? Nothing else. Meal timing doesn't matter as long as you're in a calorie deficit. Now, if you want to throw in satiation into the mix, if you want to throw exercise into the mix, then I would argue that it does matter or it certainly does play a part. If you have all your other variables nailed, you know, you've got your calories deficit or your calorie surplus, whatever, your macros nailed, then 
spreading out your meals throughout the day can certainly enhance exercise performance, especially situating uh, high carbohydrate, moderate protein meals, peri-workouts, so before and after your workout can certainly help with exercise performance, and satiation throughout the day, because if you eat a few meals throughout the day, you're going to be more satiated compared to fasting all day or starving all day and then eating just a huge meal at night that might lead to a bit of an unhealthy relationship with food I believe and I don't know if you'll be the happiest person throughout the day because I know when I'm hungry I'm a little bit agitated (laughs) a little bit sad too I get like sungry instead of some people call it hangry like um, hungry and angry but I get sad and hungry so I get a bit sungry yeah okay well what's your take on meal timing yeah, I would agree in that pretty much in whole. Like, you just got to figure out what are your goals. Like, if you want to eat everything in one go, which is, I guess, similar to fasting in a sense, like, that's up to you. But if you have training goals and if you want to, like, get to sleep at night and not be starving, that's assuming you eat everything around midday, then, yeah, you just got to figure mm-hmm. that out. So, like, obviously, if if you have an abundance of carbohydrate, like, I don't know, like 400 plus carbs a day, then you can probably afford to have a good amount of carbs at each meal. But if you are on like one to 200 carbs, then you really need to situate that around training to provide you with energy, peri-workout. So, mm. And also just throwing in there that when you come back to um, circadian rhythm, which is kind of like our biological clock, there is a lot more research being done in this area. And it really is best to try to get your body on a set routine. So tr- making it kind of aware that certain meals are going to come in around certain times of the day and your body will usually function optimally like that compared to just sporadically doing random things each and every day. And sometimes having infrequent meals or meals at really strange times of the day can really impact sleep and sleep is so damn important. So you don't want to sacrifice your quality of sleep. Mm. Cool. Okay, so if we've done meal timing, should we do the carbs at night make you fat? Yeah. All right, sure. so Jack, just how fat do carbs make you at night? <laughs> well, I eat a lot of carbs at night, so I must be pretty fat. Is that why your BMI is like over 40? <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> well, te- technically, I do have an overweight BMI. So. Technically, but yes. <laughs> um, but no, carbs at night won't make you fat is the short answer. Okay, and why won't they make you fat? So it just comes down to your total energy intake and whether you're in a energy deficit or an energy surplus. Yeah, exactly, guys. So people think that like your metabolic rate slows down at night or it slows down when you're sleeping, when in fact our metabolic rate is essentially the same. Or I think there's even some studies to show that it's slightly elevated during sleep because sleep is such an integral part for human survival. And that's when a lot of recovery processes are going on, especially if you're doing, you know, regular exercise. That's when we're really growing new muscle tissue and recovering. Yeah, there was some other points to add. Like uh, there was a post done by Jackson Pios who, yeah, he's a current researcher and he's pretty new into the scene. But yeah, I encourage anyone to follow him. He's puts out some great content. And he actually posted this article a while ago, which said that basically higher carb or higher energy intakes towards the beginning of the day will actually result in higher um, burning more energy throughout the day. And that's not just magic to your metabolism. It's purely because you have more fuel. So you're going to be more encouraged to walk, run, Mm -hmm. do more activity, 
etc so yeah and but and that's highly backed by gary slater as well Mm. he he said that too but it really does come down to individual preference but like jack said of course if your daily calories are accounted for and you tend to eat more of those towards the beginning of the day you have more energy to run further lift more weights um but i will mention that carbohydrates at night can actually increase serotonin levels and serotonin is or it's actually a neurotransmitter created in the brain that makes us feel good and it makes us feel relaxed and happy and it can contribute again to a good night's sleep so actually having a pretty high carbohydrate meal at night can for some people contribute to a good night's sleep Mm. i've actually got a little um quick myth that we can bust as well um basically you know the blue blue light blocking glasses yeah so a lot of people think that or you've probably seen those the people with orange glasses because they help prevent is it um, melatonin melatonin yeah yeah so melatonin is a hormone that naturally builds up in our bodies throughout the day and it helps us um, feel more sleepy but then when we sleep at night melatonin levels decrease so that and then once they are decreased to a certain level then we feel more awake and alert and then we wake up it's it contributes to our sleep wake cycle Mm. and by being exposed to a lot of blue light so like the light from our phones and our tvs and computer screens that actually influences melatonin secretion and that's why a lot of people if they're always on their phone or computers late at night it impacts their quality of sleep and can actually decrease their sleep onset latency so it takes them longer to get to sleep but yeah as jack was saying Mm, yeah there has been some research on these blue light blocking glasses and even the um like the night mode on your phone and stuff and basically there's not much evidence to confirm that they actually work effectively so which is like it's probably just a massive placebo effect and even i've definitely tried it before and like i Jack's noticed, got the glasses <laughs> yeah they're not they're not too um fashionable then oh yeah I, you look <laughs> like a bit of a bug <laughs> But yeah, um, again, there's a lot of things like this, guys. Like, there, it's a nice theory. And, you know, if someone, if you don't actually go to the question, like, ask in deep, like, why? Or ask for the scientific mechanism behind that. Or ask, is this supported by strong research? Then it is very easy to believe these things. It's believable. Mm. Yeah, and sometimes we forget to even question it. We just go with it. Yep. So, yeah, another one that I would like to address, which I think is a little bit controversial, is the like fat loss reduction in one area. So spot fat loss reduction. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So what was the question? So it was basically in general, like the myth of is it possible to target body fat loss? So say unlike your glutes or abdominals and Mm -hmm. like we got a few questions as well saying um, crunches or abdominal work to reduce belly fat. So we can combine those two. Okay. So what would you start with? Well, I think overall you can't spot fat loss, your body fat in one area. It sucks guys. Yeah. So basically it's genetically predetermined on or yeah, basically on where you will lose body fat from. So say I'll lose it from like my glutes first. Tiara might lose it from her abdominals first. I don't want to lose any body fat from my glutes. (laughs) Working damn hard for those buns. (laughs) Um, So yeah, Uh, it's basically, yeah, it's not possible. It purely comes down to the energy deficit. If you want to lose more, say from your abdominals, you just have to keep losing weight. So yeah, if you, 
if you want to lose weight purely to get abdominals, but everything else is leaning out first, that kind of sucks because you have to just keep dieting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does suck. And but there, it's there's kind of two ways because one, it's it's more of an illusion. Like for example, if you were overweight but you are consistently training your core, you are developing more muscle in that area so that when you finally do lose a substantial amount of weight to make your abdominals visible, because there's muscle there, it's going to give the illusion that they that your core is smaller, mm. if, if you understand yeah, what I mean. Basically, they'll look better at a high body fat. So, And it applies to any muscle, any muscle group. So say your arms... If you have lots of muscle on your arms, then they're going to look better at a higher body fat than if you have no muscle and it's just Play-Doh. So. Yeah, exactly. But in short, you can't spot reduce, but you certainly can build muscle while still at a fat body fat percentage. This is fat where I want to... percentage. What did you say? I want to put in something anecdotal in that. I do think there can be, especially more something when you get to the bottom end of a prep and like... Say if you were training a muscle group versus not training it at all, like say hip thrusting for glutes, mm-hmm. I do think that you will lose more fat in that area compared to if you don't train it at all. And I think that just comes down to blood flow. Yeah, exactly. So so yeah, like Jack said, by uh, directing more blood flow to a certain body area, it is going to mobilize fatty acids in that area. Actually, if you go onto Jeff Nippard's channel on YouTube, he actually did a really good video on this where he covered a study where these people would exercise. They'd either train upper body or lower body. And following that, they would do cardio. I believe they'd either do cardio for their upper body. Like they kind of imagine like bike pedals, but for your hands, like they would spin or they would actually go on a cycle, I believe, and spin over their legs. And at the end of the study, they wanted to determine if they did lose more body fat on that area that was both trained resistantly and then done cardio on. And they actually did show a significant difference, I believe. I don't know the exact details of the study, but if you go over to his page, he did cover a study like that. And it kind of does change the game a little bit. It does kind of give a bit of evidence for spot reduction. But again, there needs to be Mm. a lot more studies and a lot more trials. What I think is just happening is that they're maximizing what they can lose from that area. Like it's still predetermined how much they can lose and Mm -hmm. like where they'll lose it from. But they're just maximizing their potential in that area, if that makes sense. So yeah, that's my way of interpreting it. Yeah, exactly. Essentially, there just needs to be more research done. But Overall, just aim to be in a calorie deficit and be losing weight. Yeah. All right. What's another myth we we can bust? So, oh, yeah, we have a few on the anabolic window. So this one says protein must be consumed 20 to 30 minutes after working out. And I also got one saying, yeah, like the anabolic window and how short it is and that sort of stuff. Yeah, but that's true. Like, if you don't drink a protein shake literally as you're walking out of the gym, you might as well have not worked out because you, you're you essentially just going to catabolize and you're going to turn into dust. You're not going to have mm. any muscles at all. So Yeah, my bus ride after the gym yesterday was an hour. So Yeah, dude, you're looking smaller today. I can tell. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> okay, so what the flips is with this anabolic window, Jack? So yeah, I think obviously yeah, protein, it's very financially advantageous for protein companies to market 
20 to 30 minutes after working out because basically then due to the convenience of protein powder like that's going to be your number one source Mm -hmm. like that's how they market their stuff so and i remember when i first started buying protein i used to do that rule all the time yeah of course (laughs) it's easy again guys it's it's, a great theory you know if it's on the back of optimum nutrition it must be right oh yeah man best quality evidence there um, but actually, I think it was either Alan Aragon or Brad Schoenfield, maybe it was both of them. Quite a few researchers have referred to this, instead of thinking of it as an anabolic window, think of it as like an anabolic barn door. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so much bigger than you actually think. So you're, and what's something that I've always thought about is that your body doesn't actually know like when you stop working out. Like, how is it actually supposed to know that? Like, let's say you're training uh, on a pole day, right? And you did your last rep on bicep curls. Do you really think your body turns on like some internal clock counting down from 30 minutes saying, this is the only time you have until you consume protein, otherwise it's game over. Like when you actually think about it like that, it doesn't make any sense. So what they've found is that it's more like a barn door. There's actually a quite a large time period in which you can still maximally utilize amino acids to be taken up, absorbed and redirected to your muscles so that you can induce recovery. So what they've generally recommended is that your peri-workout meals should be within four to six hours of one another. So just to give you an example, let's say that it was 12 p.m. in the afternoon and you have lunch, right? And then you go work out at one o'clock. Your one one o'clock workout goes for two hours until three o'clock. You still have an extra hour until you even reach that four hour threshold at 4 p.m. And that's going to highly depend on what your lunch was. So let's say your lunch was a very fast digesting lunch. So what would be a fast digesting lunch? White pasta. Okay, white pasta with chicken with some chicken maybe yeah so yeah white pasta with some chicken so if it was a fast digesting carbohydrate and you know there was there wasn't too much fiber in there then maybe you have around four hours before you should probably eat again but let's say that you ate something that was really fibrous like you had a bunch of potatoes and you had a steak and you had a salad you probably like honestly you probably have a good six plus hours before you truly need to eat again because that food is still being digested. It's probably still even partly in your stomach during your workout. And those amino acids and that glucose is still elevated in your bloodstream. So you don't need to down a protein shake straight after because Jesus, you're still trying to metabolize that freaking steak. Yeah, the only thing I'll add to that is that basically when you're working out your sympathetic nervous system, which is your flight or fight response is activated and Basically, in order to effectively digest and absorb food, you need to be in a parasympathetic nervous state. Which is like rest and digest. Yep. And yeah, so straight after exercise for around 20 to 30 minutes, you're still going to be in that sympathetic state. So it's best to wait until you're in that parasympathetic state to eat. So Mm -hmm. that might differ on the individual or how intense your workout was. So like after a leg day, it might be longer than if it was like a upper upper body day. So but yeah, it's it's probably going to be more than 20 to 30 minutes, I would say. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, no stress. And remember, 
So that's actually why quite a few people run into gastrointestinal issues during exercise if they've eaten really soon beforehand, because your body only has a set amount of blood volume. I believe it's somewhere around five liters of blood volume. And if you're competing between that sympathetic nervous system and that parasympathetic nervous system, right, your body wants to redirect blood to your gastrointestinal system to um, metabolize that food, right, and digest that food. But then at the same time, you've gone into the gym and you're starting to squat and you're starting to lift weights and your muscles want that blood as well. So you've got two competing systems there and that's why some people can run into some gastrointestinal distress. So yeah, I'd say give it a good amount of time. It's gonna be highly individual, but give it at least an hour before you exercise after you've had your meal. Yeah, and ooh, that also backs up. I know I'm talking about sleep a lot, but again, if you've eaten a big meal, some people feel quite sleepy afterwards. That's because a large amount of your blood volume has gone to your core to help digest that food and away from your muscles and partly away from your brain, I believe. Essentially, you just kind of feel like you have a bit less energy and you kind of just want to chill out and really um, digest that big ass meal. So that's why you might feel a bit sleepy especially after a Thanksgiving dinner. All right, so is there another one? So another myth apparently is Pepsi Max is better than Coke Zero. What a joke. <laughs> I, I don't think we can really attest to this. Mm, from my limited experience, I would say Pepsi Max is actually better. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not the biggest diet um, soft drink drinker. So to be honest, I think I've tasted both. They taste pretty similar to me, but all I know is that we probably both agree that Coke Zero does taste better than normal Coke. Yeah. Yeah. Remember from um, Thailand, Jack and I actually uh, tried both and we didn't tell each other which one was which. And we both thought that Coke Zero was the actual Coke because it just tasted better. It was sweeter, but clearly because of the artificial sweeteners. Mm. All right. So are there any more that we can cover? So the last one we're going to cover is basically myths on fasting. And yeah, we, I actually heard this thing on Instagram a couple of days ago by this guy who supports, I don't know, he goes through different phases. I'm not going to name him, but he was saying that he didn't want to fast too much because it actually dries up the mucosa lining of your <laughs> gut. Oh my God. What? It dries it up? Yeah. Okay, so um, for anyone who doesn't know, so the mucosal lining in our gastrointestinal system, and it's also in our other bodily organs as well, it's generally just like, think of it as like a protective lining. So it protects us against dangerous pathogens, bacteria, viruses, and it also helps with the absorption of nutrients. Mm. And... Jack's dad is a gastroenterologist, one of the best in the country, and I am not aware of this. <laughs> there has been no mention of dry intestinal mucosal linings. So. Yeah, he just, he laughed when I asked him about it. Oh my it. god. <laughs> okay, shall we just say no? Yeah, <laughs> No, fasting won't do that to you guys. It's okay. Your, your, your body won't dry up and shrivel up. Okay, so we're probably going to leave this myth-busting episode there. Those were some really awesome questions. We'll probably have to do this again in the future mm, when some definitely. more 
yeah, so when some more crazy stuff comes up, uh, whatever the new fitness craze is, I don't know what people will be juicing in the future. God, God knows. But um, to finish our episode, we will say one thing that we learned this week. So one thing you learned. So something that I learned this week was in relation to obese individuals and how they have lower testosterone rates than leaner individuals. So the main reason behind this is that adipose tissue, which obviously obese individuals have more of, is responsible for producing a compound called aromatase. Mm. And basically this compound converts testosterone into estrogen. So yeah, it's quite... I guess it's pretty simple when you put it like that, but that's one of the reasons why one of the most important ways for obese people to get high testosterone levels is just to lose weight. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Yeah, it's always good to know those things. Um, Okay, so one thing that I learned this week, this semester for my elective at university, I'm doing a counseling course, which is really awesome. And this um, week I had a lecture on neurobiology and I learned this cool little fact from my lecture and she was telling us about how it's estimated that only 10% of our emotions are actually available consciously and that around 90% of our emotions are unconscious. And one of the main roles of therapy, you know, it's a very artistic skill and a very skilled therapist is able to help you uncover some of that 90% of emotions verbally so that they become conscious. And damn, I just thought that was really cool. But yeah, okay, so sweet. We will be wrapping it up here. Thank you guys so much for joining us on our 13th episode. If you enjoyed this one, please share it around, take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we will catch you next week. See you guys.